Hi everyone, David Harris here for Criminal Injustice. It's time for our winter break here on the podcast. And while we're away, we're posting some of our favorite recent Criminal Injustice interviews for you to hear again. Today, we're going to give you episode 92, What Civilian Oversight Needs to Succeed. Our guest on this episode was Brian Kaur, who is the president of the National Association for Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. He's going to talk to us about what makes a successful civilian oversight effort and what sometimes causes these attempts at reform to fail. It was a great talk with Brian. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Here it is. With every police shooting of an unarmed civilian, we hear calls for civilian oversight of police. But just creating an oversight agency is no magic bullet. What does a civilian review board need to succeed? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your guide, nerd geek, and explainer of our dysfunctional and awful sometimes criminal justice system. And still so, so grateful for that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. We're now four years past the summer of 2014, the summer of the deaths of Eric Garner in Staten Island, New York, and Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. It seems sometimes like the reports of police misconduct simply keep coming. Of course, this doesn't reflect the reality of most policing in most places day after day, but these events do matter. They matter a lot, and they grab the public spotlight. A bad case here in my county in June of 2018 serves as an unfortunate example. A 17-year-old high school student running away from a police traffic stop of a suspicious car died when a police officer shot him three times in the back as he ran. The officer, employed by a small suburban borough town called East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, should not have been in policing. He'd already been fired or forced out of another department for misconduct. The case has brought an issue to the surface of our county that often comes to the fore in the aftermath of a civilian death at the hands of police or even lesser problems of misconduct. What's needed, people argue, is civilian oversight of police officers and agencies. The city of Pittsburgh already has one, in fact, but the other one hundred plus agencies in our county do not. And members of the public argue they need this kind of oversight too. Police either won't or can't police themselves. That's what they argue. The civilians need to be involved to ensure there is real accountability when police officers engage in misconduct. There have been protests and speeches making this demand. Here are a couple of voices of citizens at an Allegheny County Council meeting arguing for citizen oversight. The audio is from KDKA Television in Pittsburgh. It cannot be solely left up to the boroughs and towns in Allegheny County to hold their own officers accountable. Any citizen of Allegheny County to feel that there is an open and transparent process for them to file their complaints. 
Now, we have had a couple of great shows on this topic in our third season. Come and check out episode 42 with Elizabeth Pittenger, the executive director of our Citizens Complaint Review Board here in Pittsburgh, and episode 43 with Walter Katz, the former police auditor in San Jose, who is now working similar territory in Chicago for the mayor. Today, we're going to get specific. We're going to ask, what if the demands for civilian oversight succeed and an agency is created? How do we know it will help to solve problems? Does civilian oversight actually promise to do that? What do successful agencies look like and what about those that fail? What do they look like? Our guest today is the ideal guide for us as we try to get through this thicket. Brian Kaur is the current president of the National Association for Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement, a nonprofit that aims to improve law enforcement responsiveness to community needs, to increase police accountability and transparency, and to build community trust through civilian oversight. In his day job, Mr. Kaur serves as executive secretary of the Police Review and Advisory Board for the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts. The Police Review and Advisory Board is the city's civilian oversight agency. And he is also executive director of the city's Peace Commission, which works to connect municipal agencies, nonprofits, communities of faith, and others in the wake of traumatic events. Before joining the municipal government, Mr. Kaur worked as the first statewide field organizer for the ACLU of Massachusetts, where he organized civil liberties task forces across the state. Brian Kaur, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Well, thank you so much, David. It's really my pleasure to be here on your show. I'm a faithful listener and It's a great opportunity for me to share with your listeners some of the work we do, some of the issues you've raised, and to help people have a better understanding of civilian oversight and what it can mean to their communities. Well, I'm so glad to have you with us. You know, the history of civilian oversight, uh, the the attempts to have civilian oversight, this goes back decades, as you know, at least into the 60s and 70s, but it's not really until maybe the 80s or even the 90s when we start to see successful examples of this in a few places in the United States. What made for that first wave of successful agencies? Well, that's a great question, David. And as you say, oversight does go back. I mean, some of the earliest examples of attempts go back to the 1920s, started in earnest in the 50s. But this, as you say, wave of success, I believe, really happened because a few different things came into place. There was more of an understanding of why oversight had not been as effective as it could have been in some of the early attempts. And there was also the sense that it had to be a process that wasn't simply driven by um, advocates or attorneys, but really had to be a collaborative process that involved stakeholders from the community, from government, and from law enforcement in creating models that could work in their communities. That's so interesting. So it goes back even farther than I knew into the 20s and the 50s. And then when we finally get there, when there is something to talk about in terms of successful agencies, it happens because there is more of an understanding of what makes an agency work. And you mentioned collaboration, many stakeholders. Uh, Was it still the complaint review model? Is that still where it was? Uh, The initial models really were about uh, taking complaints, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but the the simple idea is that 
if people have some encounter with the police that they don't feel good about, that they feel was wrong, that they know was wrong, what are they going to do about it? You can always go to the police department. You can make a complaint to the police. Uh, there are both issues around the idea of it and often the reality of trying to make those complaints. So there was a movement to say, how can we create an entity inside government that's separate from the police department that can actually allow members of the community to go in with a complaint, have some process to examine it, and make a determination about whether or not the police behaved properly, appropriately, whether the person was treated properly and appropriately, and to do that as non-law enforcement people, to do that as civilians. Um, often that would involve a board, which would be community members that had somehow been appointed, whether by the city council or usually by the mayor or city manager, and would have some form of review or even investigation. And those early models, um, a good examples would be Kansas City, which actually does go back to the 1950s, and San Francisco, which goes back to the 1970s. So with those kinds of things in mind, let's start picking apart what are those important qualities? You mentioned a board, um, and and that seems like it raises the idea of independence. It can't be part of the city government itself. It has to be independent from it. How does that work? What's important there? Well, let me clarify. This actually comes up a lot. I wouldn't say that it needs to be separate from the city government, but it needs to be independent of the police enforcement or law enforcement agency that it oversees, uh, whether that's a police department, a sheriff's department. But generally, I would say to have effective oversight, you actually need to be part of the government. You need to be within the municipal government in some way, shape, or form while still being independent of the actual law enforcement agency. And that independence uh, takes a few forms, but one of them is that the people involved in that oversight agency should be accountable to the mayor, to the city council, to the city manager, but to some executive authority that is able to take their information, take their findings, take their reviews, and make use of them. And for that person to actually have, or that group of people, to actually have the ability to make those things stick. And sometimes that's about individual complaints. Other times that's about broader changes. We can probably talk about that more. But independence is absolutely key. I'd say another important piece is access to information. Right. Now, again, this varies broadly, and this will be one of my themes throughout our conversation. Every municipality, every state has different laws and rules about almost everything in our wonderfully complicated system. Right, and totally decentralized. Exactly. Um, so you have to find a way within your context to get the information you need to do the work that you are tasked to do, uh, whether that's police reports, whether that's interviewing officers, and that could be directly by the oversight agency. Um, in some systems, you have to actually have the police department do those interviews. But you have to be able to get the information about the event and the things that led up to it and what happened after it. You also have to have the ability to um, initiate investigations. There are certain agencies where the police chief or police commissioner determines when a review board can see cases. And that's much better than not having that. But I would say it's preferable in most cases if it's allowable by law for the oversight agency to have the ability to de determine that here's a case 
that we need to look into in it's whatever self-initiation, form in other words, not coming from an outsider. Exactly. And that's not to say that the police chief or the mayor might not refer other things to the oversight agency, but the oversight agency should have the ability independently to determine this is something that we believe we need to look into. And following our rules and procedures, we are going to do that. And just to return a minute to the the subject of access to information, one thing Mm -hmm. that constantly comes up is subpoena power. You can't possibly have an agency that will work if it doesn't have subpoena power. Um, There are many models out there. What's your take on that? Do they have to have subpoena power? And what if they do? What does that result in? Does it always work? As you say, this comes up all the time. It's one of the first things that a community or an activist will ask me. And I would say it can be helpful, but it's absolutely not a necessity. And one thing about subpoena power to remember is that you can subpoena witnesses. You may be able to subpoena information if there aren't other things preventing you getting it. But you can't subpoena officers and compel them to tell you about what happened. Um, In most cases, this is not something that is allowable by law. Why is that? Well, there are some Supreme Court rulings, and I will say I'm not an attorney, unlike you, but that give officers specific rights around testifying. And there are also, of course, the rights that we all have constitutionally, but there are garrity rights. And those basically, my understanding is that officers can be compelled to make statements by a superior officer, because they are in a paramilitary structure, and it's um, you know top-down command. That's right. But there are real limits on what can be done with that information. So That's right, because it, they're compelled statements, and when we have compelled statements in the criminal law, they're generally not usable by the prosecuting authority to prosecute somebody. Right. And that comes into play in civilian oversight. So my sense is that many people think, oh... If we get a subpoena, then they're going to have to come tell us what happened, and they're going to have to tell us the truth under the penalty of perjury. And the reality is subpoena power may be helpful, but it generally doesn't do what people think. And I think far too often communities and activists and organizers even will will get very focused on this idea of the subpoena power. Sometimes elected officials in crafting these things do. And then the challenge becomes you're fighting over whether or not to get the specific power that actually, I would say in most cases, doesn't do that much to further the larger mission of civilian oversight, which is really ultimately to improve policing. In many, many cases, people are thinking about specific misconduct and how to address that. But the big picture is always, how do we transform policing? How do we make the department more accountable to the community it serves, and more importantly, how do we make a department do the type of policing in the way that a community wants it to? And so oversight is actually a tool to improve policing as much as it is a tool for accountability for misconduct. Oversight as a tool to improve, uh, not just to address misconduct. You know, that is such an important point, and I think it really... Uh, it gets to uh, the difference between the two major groups of civilian oversight models. I mean, this can come in all mm-hmm. kinds of shades, but the complaint review 
model is one, and it's been the dominant one. It's the one we all think of. It's the one we have here in Pittsburgh. But there Mm -hmm. is also a model that is much more about improving services uh, in the sense that you don't look at individual cases. You look at bigger issues. Mm -hmm. I hear that called the auditor model. Yeah, often it's called an auditor or an inspector general model. Exactly. And that is um, one of what's funny, because I would say that's one of what people often say is three models. People often will separate review and investigation. But I think for the purposes of your point, there there is a fundamental difference between review and investigation of specific complaints and more generally looking at uh, bigger issues, problems, failures, and trends. The idea of auditing or having an inspector general approach really comes out of other government agencies, and it's a a much deeper way at looking at how do you transform policing. Um, In some places, you have both types of agencies. So New York City, for example, um, for decades has had the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which is, as it sounds like in its name, complaint-driven. They actually do some prosecutions even, but it's really driven by individual complaints and cases of misconduct, whereas you now also have an inspector general. Right, they have both. Exactly. And so they're both doing their work. The inspector general is really looking at much broader systemic issues and um, digs in and will do large reports, systemic reviews, in the same way an inspector general would do in the federal government. And I think this combination is actually very interesting. Now, New York being the largest city in the United States has a lot of capacity to do this. But what that's led to is, and not just New York, but what that kind of approach has led to is a situation where you have more and more agencies that are really hybrids of what traditionally in our field had been thought of as the models. So you have an agency that has the ability to take individual complaints and investigate them, make determinations, review investigations done by the police department, internal affairs people. But they also have the ability to look at broader patterns. And there are some great examples of that around the country. Uh, New Orleans has the um, Independent Police Monitor. Los Angeles has the Office of Inspector General. Uh, Denver has an Office of the Independent Monitor. And Chicago now has... um, not a hybrid, but they have multiple systems. So they have just recently created a deputy inspector general for public safety in parallel to their civilian office of police accountability. So this is an emerging trend in oversight. And and it comes from a number of things, right? It comes from the experience people have had about the challenges and looking at ways to do things more proactively. But it also comes from this overall idea that we spoke about, that you want to improve things rather than just fix things when they go wrong. Uh, Barry Friedman at New York University talks about front-end accountability and moving from the idea of back-end accountability, there's been something terrible, let's look at what happened and get rid of that person that did it. How do we do front-end accountability? How do we find ways to identify where there are systemic problems, whether that be training, whether that's in how officers perform their work, whether that's even in the equipment that they're given or not given, and then looking at those broader systemic issues, move to support policing being more effective. Um, You increase community responsiveness. You help the community feel more invested in policing. You give officers the tools they need. You enhance officer safety. 
So this is, I think, a trend that more and more communities are going to, finding some way, whether it's through parallel agencies or an agency that has multiple aspects, to both address individual complaints and to improve the work of the police department in their community. You said so many important things there. I, I should correct myself. The the, the Pittsburgh uh, body is called the Citizens Complaint Review Board, but it actually also has those broader review powers. And speaking with Beth, Beth Pittenger uh, in episode mm-hmm. 42, she talked about how some of that work is actually as or more impactful than anything they do with complaints. And that new post that mm-hmm. you mentioned in Chicago, that's where Walter Katz, our guest on episode 43, now is. He is, he is that guy. Absolutely. Um, and, and Beth and Walter uh, have both been involved in NACOL for many years and are really leaders in our work. So it's yes. great that you've been able to speak to them over the years. And I have to also give a shout out to Barry Friedman, who appeared here and talked about his book, Warrantless. And that idea of front end accountability is so important if we want to improve things going forward. So the power to make policy recommendations and do those kinds of overall reviews, quite important. You've mentioned a couple of other things to me, regular public reporting and Mm -hmm. the idea that the chief or the sheriff or whoever the executive is for the agency would have to respond in writing. Talk about those. Now, those are really great things to mention as well. Not every agency has the same ability or uh, method of reporting, but I would say that it's one of the the most powerful things if you can find a way to do it in your community that works within your political environment and your community environment. So giving people information, again, thinking about public record laws, sunshine laws, law enforcement officer bills of rights, all these different um, variables that affect how much information you can give, to the extent possible, providing information about the kinds of complaints you get, the number of complaints you get, the dispositions, um, recommendations if you're complaint-driven. Certainly, if you're an auditor or an inspector general, you are issuing reports that give people lots of information. But to be able to do that in a way that gives people the sense that When things happen, there's accountability, there's examination, but there's also thought about how do we move forward, right? It's not just about what went wrong, but how do we change things in the future? So I think that that kind of public reporting is very important. And And then you'd want the chief to respond to it, wouldn't you? You would, you would. And certainly not every agency, I'd say the minority of agencies, have that written into their ordinance or their enabling legislation. But To the extent that you can ask a police chief or a sheriff to respond in writing to the points you raise, it, one, helps to increase transparency, but two, it actually creates more of a dialogue between the oversight agency and the community and the law enforcement agency and the other actors, the elected officials, the appointing authority. That's the kind of information, um, hearing what the oversight agency has to say, and then hearing what the police department's response is. Um, You can really create a positive dialogue. Now, of course, it can be contentious. You will have situations where there's not agreement. Sure, sure, absolutely. Just saying the chief has to respond doesn't mean the chief has to say yes to everything. The chief may very well say no, but here's why. Exactly. And that actually can be an important learning experience for other stakeholders in this picture. One of the things that is important uh, 
and I, this may come up again because I know you've spoken about this on your show, are the issues of procedural justice and legitimacy. So there's a lot of conversation about procedural justice and legitimacy in terms of law enforcement, but one of the things that I personally strongly believe is that as civilian oversight, we also have to practice procedural justice, and we also have to ensure that we have legitimacy. It might be a little more complicated for us because we have to have those uh, relationships that are procedurally just, and we have to have legitimacy with law enforcement. We have to do it with the community, and we have to do it with elected officials and government officials. So it's not an easy path. And I think that's part of why so often the perception is that oversight is not doing what it's supposed to or it's failing. Because for us to really do our work effectively, we have to have legitimacy. And I can talk a little bit more about that and how you get there. But to back to your question, I do think that having the ability to hear back from the police department, what it thinks about what the oversight agency is saying is important for understanding policing and important for having legitimacy. If we say that it's important for someone dealing with the police to have voice, then we need to have that be true for individual officers when there are complaints, but also for a law enforcement agency. They have to um, have their side be heard. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break at this point. Uh, we're talking with Brian Core. He is the president of the National Association of Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. David with you. And our guest on this episode is Brian Kaur. He is the president of the National Association of Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. And we've been talking about what it takes for a civilian oversight agency to succeed. What kind of things go into that? And now that we have a pretty good list, let's come to some examples. Brian, can you give us an example of a complaint-driven agency that you think really does it right, and why is it? Why does it succeed? Okay, well, that's a great question, and I will say, as the president of the National Association, you know, I I love you all don't of our play members. favorites. I know, I know, <laughs> you love all your kids. Exactly. No, and and because they're all so different, um, you know, there it's interesting how many variations there are on the work. But I would say uh, there are some people that in different ways are doing amazing work. So I had mentioned um, the New York City Office of the Inspector General um, for the Police Department, and they have done some really great work. Um, As you mentioned, uh, the Eric Garner case, many, many cases uh, resulting from the stop and frisk pattern that they were using to um, try to address the broken windows idea to reduce crime in New York by starting with the small things. This led to a number of things, including federal investigations, but the Inspector General for Public Safety in New York has really been able to dig into this and make recommendations about improving policing that I think will have an impact around the country over time. You have an office like um, Los Angeles, where you have had a long history of challenges in policing and uh, some of the most serious corruption cases in the country's history that we're aware of. But you have an office of um, the inspector general, you have a police commission that have worked together to really help transform that department. Police chiefs often get the credit when things go badly or when things go well. But in Los Angeles, I can certainly say that the civilian oversight piece has been 
a key part of transforming that. Um, in Seattle, interestingly, you have a fairly complicated set of civilian oversight agencies, and they have been challenged by the situation in Seattle, by the history, but they have been working to transform oversight um, through having a civilian in charge of the Internal Affairs Department, which is an interesting way to have civilian oversight. I've never have, even uh, heard about that. That is really interesting. So this is a trend that is increasing within police departments, where you actually have a civilian who is the head of internal affairs, often called professional standards, where you do you have sworn officers who report to that person. The sworn officers may be doing investigations alongside civilian investigators, but you have someone who is within the city government and often within the police department, but who is not a sworn police officer who came up through the ranks. And that person often will have some expertise in human relations and HR. They may have legal expertise. They may have personnel expertise. But they're looking at all of the different issues that occur because it's not just complaints that come from the outside when you're doing internal affairs or professional standards. It's also internal complaints, problems that supervisors see. But to have a civilian doing that work is, is quite a big step for police departments. And I'd say it's part of the um, change that's allowing civilian oversight to exist in more and more communities. That is so interesting. Let, let's, let's flip it around. And let's, you know, if we know what makes uh, an agency succeed or prepares it or uh, the, prepares the ground for success, what are the things that you see where this doesn't work out? I mean, I, I can think uh, of so many places in which there's been an oversight agency, but it's just gone dormant. It hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. It's failed very publicly, a lot of different ways to fail. Uh, but what are the qualities that seem to stick out in those stories to you? Right, right. That's another great question. And I will say, I don't know that I would say many have failed. Uh, I might say many have failed to live up to expectations. <laughs> so that would be the, the first thing, is that very often there's an expectation um, that an oversight agency will end misconduct, will remove the bad apples, will get rid of the police who are racist. And generally, an oversight agency, you know, it has a very specific role, purpose, authority, and function. And that may or may not include any of those abilities. In many places, um, the oversight agency is not allowed by law to be involved in discipline, uh, certainly not of termination. Although that's, again, there are many exceptions to that. Another piece is what's the local environment in terms of the politics, the ordinances, the state law, the um, union environment and strength. Does the state have a police officer bill of rights? Often people are hoping that an oversight agency can address things that are not legally done in that state or community or cannot be done uh, unless the collective bargaining agreement is changed. Also, there's a lot of history in any specific place. Uh, I could go on for a long time, but I think about Baltimore, where um, our organization, NACOL, has been working uh, for the last couple of years to help support transforming and improving civilian oversight in the wake of the uh, Department of Justice civil rights investigation and consent decree. But in Baltimore, you have a history that goes back to before the U.S. Revolution. You have slavery in Baltimore. So this is one of the few major cities that began as a city with enslaved people 
as part of that community. And it has one of the longest histories of zero-tolerance policing, of segregation, of Jim Crow in housing. And all of that has been part of the legacy in Baltimore. So when we talk about what makes an agency fail, and I know that some people would say that part of what happened in Baltimore was a failure of the oversight agency, there were a lot of things that fed into that. There's all the history. There also were real limits on their ability to get information. There were real limits on their ability to um, do investigations. Partly those limits were legal. Partly they were financial. The budget was very small. And as an aside, I'll say one thing that you're seeing more and more often is communities are saying that a certain percentage of the police department budget must go to support the civilian oversight agency to ensure that it has the financial wherewithal to hire the staff it needs to do its work. So its budget uh, is pegged to the police department budget. Exactly. And that, that, again, it's not a necessity, but it's a really interesting model for ensuring that over time or with different administrations, budgets don't dwindle down to be something so small where the agency can't meaningfully complete what its mission is. So Uh, you've talked about unrealistic public expectations, conflicts built into the structure of how the mm -hmm. agency is put together and paired up uh, with other pieces of the government. Not enough of the required uh, tools to have the power to get the job done. And then, of course, the lack of political will, whether it's from history or just attitudes in the present, making this a very difficult thing to accomplish. Have Mm -hmm. you seen – can you give an example of an agency created maybe with great expectations that simply did not work out? What about Newark? I've heard about that. Yeah, well, that's – Again, another example of something that's relatively current. Newark has a long, long history around policing. Um, The uh, riots or uprising that happened in Newark in the 1960s was a seminal moment. Um, Newark has had lots of other issues around governmental corruption and uh, people going to jail who had been in government. But uh, there was a Department of Justice investigation that really was brought about through uh, local activists and the American Civil Liberties Union. And um, so those calls for civilian oversight, which started in the 1960s, led to a petition to the Department of Justice by the ACLU of New Jersey in 2010. The next year they began an investigation. During this investigation, there was a, a group called Newark Communities for Accountable Policing that formed. The DOJ... Uh, by 2014, issued findings, and a consent decree was signed in 2016. Now, in that consent decree, it was one of the very first ones that talked about civilian oversight, as did the Baltimore consent decree. And and I'm realizing I'm off on another tangent. Uh, I don't know how many of your listeners know about consent decrees. And again, as a law professor, you can say more about them than I can. Oh, we did a show on consent decrees. I think a lot of people out there will know. And of course, Pittsburgh was the site of mm-hmm. the very first big city consent decree all the way back in 1997 when the Department of Justice came in, did an investigation, and it was systemic mm-hmm. reform for our police department here. Exactly. And the power of those reforms is that you have a court that has basically worked with these parties, with the community and the people who are maybe filing a lawsuit, or at least the Department of Justice, and the law enforcement agency and the municipal government to agree on what needs to happen to create better policing in that community. There's a timeline, there's a monitor that's put in place, and this is the process that Newark is under. 
So as part of this process, Newark has created um, their Civilian Complaint Review Board, and they passed an ordinance in 2016. The mayor of Newark uh, was a strong advocate for civilian oversight. However, they, in a, in a, with all the best intentions, and I think um, it's something that could still work in other communities, they decided to create a very specific model that included representation from community groups on the board. They also included the city's inspector general. They pushed for um, it being able to do audits, to have that auditor inspector general um, function to make policy recommendations to the council, mayor, and police department. Uh, they pushed for transparency, and not just about having public meetings and how many complaints they got, but also things about police stops, searches, uses of force, how much money the city is spending on lawsuits against police. And what happened immediately was the New Jersey Police Association, the, the union, filed suit. There was a court ruling, and uh, after the initial injunction, the board could still look at policies and practices, but they could not take or investigate individual complaints, and they could still make policy recommendations. Uh, the city of Newark filed an appeal. That appeal was denied, but they are still looking at trying to overturn that ruling. But for the out of the best of intentions, with lots of experts, people from law, people from the community. They work to create the strongest model of oversight possible. But unfortunately, what's happened is that it's kind of stalled out. And people in the community, I believe, are rather frustrated. People who've been involved in this are frustrated. Now, I will say that they have continued to work. They've continued to meet. They brought NACOL in. I was there myself to do training for them. So they are moving forward. But there's this perception that we did all this work. We got uh, the Department of Justice to come in, we did a consent decree, we're going to have oversight, and now nothing's happening. And again, I would disagree. I think things are happening. But it's not meeting the expectations that were set because of this idea that we want to create the strongest model of oversight possible. And that's, I think, something that unfortunately can happen very easily in the current environment when there's so much tension in our society and so much sense of uh, people are on opposite sides, and you have to fight for everything. So in my belief, and as you mentioned, I'm the director of the Peace Commission, so perhaps I'm a bit biased, I think that it's it's some of both. Sometimes you have to fight. Sometimes you have to hold people accountable. Other times you can work together. You can find where you have shared goals and common cause and work to create something that, that helps everybody. And when you can do that, I think it's much better. But it's certainly not always possible. But and that, and when it's, it's not possible, sometimes maybe the better the better part of valor might be looking at something less than the full kit of tools. Maybe you need something that comports a little better with your political environment. Exactly, exactly. And there's no single answer. There's no um, absolute one model that's the best, um, in my opinion. Some would disagree with me. There's not the best type of oversight or the strongest type of oversight. It really has to do with all of those different variables I mentioned earlier. So, uh, NACO, let's talk about the organization. If I was interested in bringing civilian oversight to my police department as a citizen, if I had just been appointed to a, a citizen's review board, or if I was a citizen who was helping to pick the new inspector general for our police department, if we had one of those, um, 
What would NACOL's role be? What can NACOL do to make better policing happen? What can they do? Well, NACOL, as you mentioned, began. It's an association of civilian oversight agencies. So we also have individuals who are civilian oversight practitioners. And those people come from a range of backgrounds. And all of these are resources for people. So there are annual training conferences that we do. Our next training conference is actually coming up in, at the end of September, and we do this every year. We usually get about 500 people. At that, we have about four and a half days of training, workshops, as well as networking and opportunities for people to learn more about specific practices within oversight, to look at emerging legal issues, to look at how do you build an oversight agency. And it attracts people who are members of civilian oversight and review boards, inspectors general and auditors, people from law enforcement, elected officials, community activists. So I say to people, we have everyone from you know, police officers who are doing tactical work to Black Lives Matter that come to our conference. And it's a really unique opportunity to meet people who are working in all aspects of civilian oversight to learn from them and exchange information. In addition, we do regional meetings around the country. We have done a couple of academic symposia. We're looking at doing a third to bring academics into this conversation and to help foster academic research into oversight. But the other piece, as I mentioned, we went to Newark. We also can either the staff and board members, who like myself are volunteers, or other people in our network can come to your community. We can speak to your board. We can do a one- or two-day training. We know people as well who are part of our network who are consultants, and sometimes we uh, will give people a list of individuals and organizations who can help them with certain uh, concerns that come up. Maybe they need to do some sort of systemic review, and they want to know who's out there. Uh, we help communities when it's time to hire somebody. If you start or restart an oversight agency, one of the most important things you're going to do is start hiring a staff person, many staff people. And that's something that, again, we're, we're not a hiring agency, but we do have a network. We can spread the word. And we can also help people think about how to structure those positions to maximize success in their own local uh, political environment. So we are not a you know, full-service shop. We have uh, three staff and an 11-member board of volunteers who are all involved in oversight. But for a, a relatively small organization, I think we punch above our weight. And we really are all passionate about oversight. We come from different backgrounds. Our board members include people who come out of law enforcement and people who come out of community organizing, attorneys. Um, it's, it's quite a mix. So we do our best to help people wherever they are in the process, whether they're thinking about creating oversight, have a new oversight agency, need to sort of refresh and revamp an existing agency, and we do it with passion. That is Brian Kaur. He is president of the National Association for Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement, a nonprofit that aims to improve law enforcement through civilian oversight. Thanks for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers. 
Behaving Badly, and this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from the South Bend Tribune and the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Sven Marshall of Mishawaka, Indiana. Lawyer Marshall is also, it seems, a CPA, but that devotion accountants reputedly have to the truth of numbers did not prevent this bad behavior. Lawyer Marshall was an elder law attorney, and the whole point of elder law is not just to provide services that older people need, but to do what's necessary to protect older clients and their assets when they're in a position of vulnerability because of age or health. Well, Lawyer Marshall was a full-service guy. He provided not only legal services, but financial services as well through his company. Company, trust and Investment Advisory Services. Clients were getting two-for-one expertise with this lawyer's CPA. He could draw up the legal documents and take care of your money all in one convenient one-stop shop. Well, how did this work out? Well, let's ask how it went for clients Stanley and Mary Jane Claybor. They hired Marshall to handle the estate of Mr. Claybor's late mother, and they gave him $80,000 of the proceeds from the sale of the mother's home to invest. Marshall had filed tax returns for the Claybors and provided them with statements and updates on the money, telling the Claybors that their investment was now worth $250,000 by last December. But when the Claybors tried to withdraw it, yeah, no, they couldn't. Lawsuit. Then came another lawsuit by five other people who were also receiving those updates from Marshall on their half-million-dollar investment. And in January, the statements just stopped. What? Lawsuit. According to this building avalanche of litigation, what we have in South Bend is a mini, a very mini, Bernie Madoff. Marshall seems to have been running himself a little Ponzi scheme. The Indiana Supreme Court finally got wise to this, and they suspended lawyer Marshall from practice back in October. And now, with the lawsuits and all, What's Lawyer Marshall's reaction to all of this? Well, we don't know because he's gone, as the headline in the ABA Journal News Online said, and I can't tell if this was supposed to get a laugh or not, quote, suspended Indiana lawyer appears to have disappeared. According to the South Bend Tribune, Marshall isn't responding to phone messages and isn't answering the door at either of the two homes owned by his wife. Subpoenas and summonses sent to his office have come back, returned to sender. So for now, those nice older people lawyer Marshall seems to have swindled are just SOL. That's a technical legal term meaning, you know, SOL. But I get a feeling that this is far from over. Remember lawyer behaving badly Eric Kahn, the biggest con man the Social Security Disability Bar had ever seen? How he was caught, pled guilty, and then skipped the country before he could be sentenced? They caught him not even a year later, down in Honduras, coming out of a pizza hut. Apparently, all law enforcement has to know about a lawyer on the lam is what his favorite American guilty pleasure fast food is. So if lawyer Marshall's ill-gotten gains are going into Big Macs or KFC or Taco Bell, it's only a matter of time. We'll keep our eyes on this one for you. That is Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that does it for this episode of Criminal Injustice.
Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Why don't you call in and ask Dave? Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also, give us some contact information, but we won't share that with anybody. Again, that number, 412-407-3389. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm David Harris, back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Megan Harris and Josh Rollerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com, where you can submit your questions and comments, or call 412-407-3389 with your question for David Harris. That's 412-407-3389, or online criminalinjusticepodcast.com. We often hear about new methods police try to achieve better results against crime. But do the police have any reason to believe that their new approaches will work? Are there new initiatives based on hope or on evidence that they will really help? Evidence-based policing on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find us on Apple Podcasts, your own favorite podcast source, or at CriminalInjusticePodcast.com.